is The Unseen, and I'm your host, Mike Cleland. Zelia Edgar is a researcher, blogger, podcaster, and she also makes YouTube videos. And I'm pretty sure she holds the title of the youngest state director in that organization ever. Zelia has been exploring the paranormal, both in the cases she has researched, as well as her own experiences and those of her family. And I think it's safe to say that she has been looking at these events through the lens of John Keel. And Keel was a self-described Fordian. And the term Fordian implies that he is a devotee of the work of Charles Fort. Now, following that logic, a steadfast advocate of John Keel's work could be called a Keelian. And that describes Zelia. She is a Keelian. Zelia runs a wonderful blog titled Just Another Tinfoil Hat. And you can find links to her videos there. Zelia runs a wonderful blog titled Just Another Tinfoil Hat, and I would encourage anyone listening to check out her site and to watch a few of her videos. One more thing. During the interview, I spoke about Christopher Bledsoe Sr. and told about his experience with the Shining Lady, sometimes called the Lady in White. He was recently interviewed in a series of four one-hour-long episodes hosted by Richard Dolan, and there is a link in the show notes to one of the episodes, and that is the one where he talks about The Shining Lady. This comes up in our conversation when Zelia and I talk about archetypes, and The Shining Lady is an archetype of hauntings, and it also seems to overlay into the UFO contact experience. This conversation was recorded on Monday, March 16th, 2020. Celia, I want to thank you so much for saying yes to this interview. It means a lot to me. Well, thank you for inviting me on the show. I'm really, really excited to be here. Great. Great. Now, here, first of all, first question, how did you get involved with this subject, this topic? Boy, that... That's actually a good question. Um, I've really, I've been interested in the paranormal and the unexplained for as long as I can remember. And, you know, I just kind of naturally gravitated towards it uh, since forever. And then it was really when I was like about eight or nine years old that my mom actually thought that it would be neat to introduce me to Bigfoot accounts because, you know, she remembered growing up in like the seventies and that was a big thing. And at the time she was a skeptic. She thought, okay, this will just be kind of an entertaining little thing. And so that's actually how I got into, you know, studying the paranormal was through Bigfoot. Well, the more she looked into it, now she's actually, you know, not a hardcore believer, but she totally thinks that there's something to the whole phenomenon and is really interested in it. And of course, I just took it and ran with it. I really started with an interest in cryptozoology and, you know, that was compounded. I met Linda Godfrey, who, of course, writes about the man, wolf and the dog man in especially Wisconsin. And I met her when I was 10 at a book signing. And that was just that totally changed my life, because here you have someone who is, you know, an adult who's writing about this seriously, who's talking about it seriously. Um, yeah, she's just she's been a huge inspiration to me ever since I met her. And you know, I've read all of her books. They're amazing. And then later, I think it was later that year, the next year, I met Chad Lewis, who's another Wisconsin researcher. 
And I have grown up going to his different presentations. He writes the Haunted uh, Road Guide series to different states and stuff like that. Now he's doing a lot of different stuff with um, the team Backroads Lore Crew. And yeah, so that's kind of what really cemented my interest was meeting these two investigators and researchers. And yeah, I've just been hooked ever since. I've been actively studying the paranormal since I was like nine years old. So something happened along this path. Um, and I know enough about you, and we spoke together before this interview. And and I know you have a a richer way of framing this stuff than you did at the beginning, where Bigfoot was just a you know a hairy ape that lived in the woods, and flying saucers were just metal spaceships from another planet. And what was what changed that? Boy, this is this has kind of an interesting answer because yes, I definitely have a way more. You know, I think it's it's still considered pretty fringe on um, the way that I look at the paranormal. But I believe that there are patterns or conditions which underlie every perceived different field of paranormal study. And I did. I started out with a very like, you know, everything is separate. You know, you've got ghosts, you've got cryptids, you've got uh, the extraterrestrials. And now that as I've moved along, I really see that there are things which connect each one of them. And the big thing that changed that for me was actually rediscovering John Keel. Um, and I say rediscovering because I had no idea. I actually read his Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings. It was one of the first um, cryptozoology books that I read when I was a kid. Picked it up at the library. I thought it was just this amazing encyclopedia on different cryptids. Ooh, ooh, and, and how old would you have been when you read that book? I would have been about eight or nine. Eight or nine? So it was, Good grief. Yeah, okay. it was one of the first books I read on the topic. And the crazy thing is, is that, you know, I just, because I went to the library and picked up everything that I could, you know, the entire shelf, pretty much, of paranormal books. And so, of course, I didn't really keep track of who the author was or really what the ideas were. I just read them. And so for years, I had no idea who wrote this, you know, great encyclopedia as I remembered it. And it was last year, actually that I bought The Complete Guide to Mysterious Beings, which has been published under a few different names on as well. And so I actually bought it, and I'm reading through it, and all of a sudden I'm like, holy mackerel, this is that book. And so here, unbeknownst to me, I had read John Keel when I was, yeah, very, very young. So I do wonder how much of that kind of absorbed into my subconscious, because even though, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, The Eighth Tower is definitely one of his most theoretical works, um, or Operation Trojan Horse, even. It is, you know, it's as close as Keel gets, I think, to a very strict kind of encyclopedic way of going through these different creature sightings. There is still a lot of his way of thinking throughout the book. So I do kind of wonder how much of that worked its way into my subconscious. Um, because I rediscovered Keel then when I was 17 with the Mothman Prophecies. And that was the first conscious, you know, move towards this kind of more unified way of looking at the phenomenon um, was with the Mothman Prophecies. And then, of course, I read Operation Trojan Horse. And it was finally with the Eighth Tower, those two books that I really started thinking, you know, the evidence is pointing to something stranger than all these different fields being separate. I agree. And that's where I'm at, too. And so I, I, I you know, I, it's understandable. Everyone makes that 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 change, that switch at some point. And if they don't, I feel like they're stuck. Like, you know, right away when you talk to someone and they have not made that switch, who's doing this kind of research. And it's a little clunky because you almost can't, you can't dialogue with them, if that makes sense. Well, the thing that I've found most often is that 
you know, and I think that a lot of good research is done from that standpoint, especially on the gathering of reports and stuff like that. I think that the problem arises when people just decide that they're not going to look at a portion of the evidence. And especially you see that with, you know, the UFO field, I feel like, where the extraterrestrial hypothesis is so strong and it's really the only option for a lot of people that when someone starts saying, well, I'm having poltergeist activity or I also saw you know, a creature, I feel like that gets ignored a lot. And, you know, it's treated in a strange way, you know, how conventional general thinking or conventional science treats the paranormal as really fringe and, you know, not very important. I feel like this idea, you know, of maybe this stuff is connected is treated that way by like the hardcore nuts and bolts or flesh and blood people. And you had a run-in with those hardcore nuts and bolsters with your time at MUFON, correct? Yes, I was affiliated with MUFON for, oh gosh, I was state director for about five months, um, ending in June of last year, I believe. And then I had been an active field investigator since August, September of 2018. So, so, so now I'm going to ask the big question here. How old are you? I just turned 24. So you were state director for Wisconsin, for MUFON, when you were? 23. 23. Wow. I have to think that that would hold a record at the, uh, at, with the, within MUFON. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> I would have to think it. you're holding a record with that one. So now you were coming into this as an enthusiast. And, I mean, you were, you were a, a, a field investigator, correct? Oh, yeah. Yep. I was a field investigator, um, certified since, yeah, September of 2018. And of course, through um, when I left in June of 2019. And I did, I spoke with a lot of witnesses. I never really had the chance to have to go out to a scene um, and take, you know, take any measurements or anything like that. But I spoke So hold on, hold on. Let me just, so no boots on the ground. No, I didn't have that chance, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> Just had to ask, because that's such a oh, catchphrase yeah. within this field, you know, boots on the ground. And I'm like, oh, yeah. gosh, I hardly ever go out to actually someone's house. I've done it plenty of times, but I mean, it's all for my own research, which doesn't have anything to do with, um, you know, it's often very obscure, the stuff I'm wrestling with. But keep going. Thank you. Oh, yeah, sure thing. No, I totally wish I would have. But, you know, the conditions have to be something that you actually have the chance to either you know, see returning or there's lasting effects. And none of those came in during my time with MUFON, which I was super disappointed by, not going to lie. But I spoke with a lot of witnesses over the phone, did a lot of different witness interviews. And that was that was my favorite part, I think, about being with MUFON was you are, you have all these reports coming in, you have the ability to contact these people and talk to these people. So it's like, you know, everything, all the information is just right there. And it gave me a huge appreciation. You know, I've been, like I said, I've been interested in the paranormal forever. And I've also had experiences with the paranormal. And I've kind of, I don't really have that same, you know, the fear response that's kind of become a classic, especially in pop culture. And so I didn't anticipate that people really have that. But, you know, when you talk to these witnesses, a lot of the times they really were coming to you for answers and they were coming to you for some sort of, reconciliation almost with their worldview and what they had seen. And so that was really, that was something that I really appreciated being exposed to was being able to talk to these people and in a way kind of try and help them figure out what had happened, even though, of course, I don't have any of the answers as to what this stuff is. And of course, I told them that, you know, sometimes it was just a matter of like, yes, people see these things. No, you're not crazy. People, people need to be heard. Yes. I mean, they're yes. credible people telling incredible stories and they know it. Uh, 
They know there's oh, they yeah. know they can't share it oftentimes with their husband or wife or their own family. Yeah. Did you investigate any abduction accounts? Not extensively. Um there was a long running one that I was vaguely a part of for a time, but it was being handled by uh, the previous state director. So she kind of took that over. And that was when I was just um, assistant state director. So that was before I was state director. So that was kind of like on the periphery of what I was doing, but I wasn't really involved with it directly. I know that there's a woman, her name is Elaine Douglas. She was the state director for Utah. And I know that... um, Bill Konkoleski, the state director for MUFON for Michigan, does this too, where after doing the initial questions in the report, you basically throw in the final question is, so anything else strange happened in your life? And mm-hmm. and from both these people, both of them have told me personally that what happens is this door gets opened up, you know, like the dam bursts basically, and then they have lots of strange stuff. So the people who are seeing UFOs also tell of you know, poltergeist-type things and orbs in the house and and all kinds of psychic phenomena and paranormal stuff. And these are the people who are seeing, well, let's say are reporting them to MUFON because there's a hurdle they have to go through after seeing. These are the people who are reporting their experiences to MUFON. Not all of them, obviously, but a goodly percentage of them have also had these other highly charged paranormal events. Mm-hmm. Did Did you see that in your research? There were a few times where I would ask that same question, actually, because, of course, you know, this was after I had been exposed to Kiel. So I was really I was trying to snoop out for the you know high strangeness cases. And so I would ask um, not only about weird occurrences, but I would also ask about any strange dreams or anything else that they might want to tell me. And, you know, a lot of the witnesses that I dealt with, it was interesting because a lot of them were it appeared to be one time witnesses, you know, and they were really just kind of concerned with whatever they had seen at the time. And other than that, seemed to lead normal lives. But every now and again, I would have um, one person who came forward and said, yeah, you know, I well, I used to live in a haunted house. That was one that came up a few times, which um, I'm very, very interested in that connection between possible hauntings and UFO encounters. So that was probably the most prevalent. There were a few there was at least one who said that they would have recurrent dreams. And then there there was another one, too, who had some strong haunting activity going on around the time of their UFO encounter. So those two cases really stand out. You just said they grew up in a haunted house. Mm-hmm. Several of the people said that. And this is something that shows up all the time in my research. Like, I just expect it when I talk to people. They say, oh, yeah, I grew up in a haunted house. How does that ring with your own personal experience? I'm as, I, I'm asking this question knowing fully the answer you're going to give. It's It rings perfectly true. It's very interesting because actually, and I'm just going to put this forward to a lot of people have asked me about, because I do, I have personal experiences with the paranormal. Um, I'd say a little bit more than, you know, the typical person. Well, I would and, say a lot more than the typical person, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah. And I've been asked about that, you know, does this have an impact on, you know, why you're interested in this? And the crazy thing is, before I was asked that question, I just, it never even occurred to me um, that any of these encounters would have anything to do with, you know, the fact that I'm interested in the phenomenon. And it seems kind of silly, but for some reason, I just never made that connection. And it's interesting because, yes, my mom, actually, the house that she grew up in uh, had pretty strong recurrent paranormal activity. And there was also a very strange UFO encounter that she and her sister went through that was followed by either remote viewing or an out-of-body experience. And so my mom grew up in that house. And then, you know, flash forward, I'm born. 
And the first paranormal encounter I had, I actually don't personally remember, but my mom remembers. I said that I saw this glowing ball um, in the hallway. And then, you know, different places that we've lived have had, you know, slight paranormal activity. Uh, The house I currently live in has had some, you know, you might call it classic haunting type activity. Um, I've seen an apparition in the house, uh, the sound of someone in the house when there's no one here. And it's it's way more than the typical house settling or drafts. You know, it's actual like it sounds like there's someone moving around, moving things downstairs when you're upstairs, stuff like that. So I would say that, yes, there is definitely a connection between, you know, even having a past connection to a haunting or haunted location and then future paranormal or unknown, unexplained phenomena. We can get back to all of this stuff after our first break. For free Dreamlanders, you are going to hear a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Zelia Edgar, and we are talking about more than just UFOs and more than just hauntings and more than just Bigfoot. We are trying to wrestle with the ideas on why these things seem to be connected somehow. These disparate things seem to be connected. Now, just before the break, you said you saw a glowing orb in your house, but you don't remember it. And how old would you have been at that point? Your mother told you that you had said this? Yep, I was apparently two years old at the time. And I'm not going to lie, it actually kind of bothers me that I don't remember it because I have I have really, really early memories. I'm um, going back to like you know, even being less than a year old. And so, of course, it frustrates me to no end that this just doesn't happen to be one of them. But yeah, apparently um, we were just in one of the rooms and I was up from a nap, but we were still just kind of like sitting, you know, talking. And I just looked out into the hallway and I asked her, I was like, you know, mommy, what's that light up or glowing ball? So, of course, she looks into the hallway and sees absolutely nothing. And so that probably was one of my first you know, paranormal experiences, I would say. There were, you no, know, there no, were other just, things. So, so I'm gonna, just speculating. Yeah. What if the ball, the glowing ball said, Zelia, read John Keel? <laughs> you know, may, maybe it did. I'll have to go through regression hypnosis for that. <laughs> I'm just wondering, because it seems like, boy, you started pretty young, so. Yeah. No, yeah, honestly. And see, that's that's the interesting thing is, again, I never even thought that that was a connection to my interest, you know, so I don't know where that dissonance is there. Because, you know, naturally, most people, I feel like a lot of people interested in the field have had experiences and they kind of say, well, this is why I'm interested, because I've had these experiences. And for me, I was like, well, I've had experiences and I'm interested no connection, you know, so. Well, that's the classic thing where like the the person has to go literally to a psychiatrist or something like that to sort of wrestle with issues. And oftentimes from an outsider, those issues can be very plain, but seeing them from the inside, it can be very difficult. Yeah. I mean, and now I kind of laugh about it because it seems so obvious, but yeah, for the longest time, it was just two completely separate things. I mean, I would talk to family members and, you know, drill them. Have you ever seen a UFO? Have you ever, you know, and of course, a lot of them, surprisingly, a lot of people in my family have, um, which I find very interesting given that a lot of people discuss possible bloodline ties and things like that. Um, but yeah, no, I drill my family members. Have you ever seen anything weird? And then I just kind of file it away in my little you know, subconscious library of weird paranormal stuff. And that's where the good stuff is in the subconscious library. Yeah, that's where the that's where the really meaty stuff is. That's what Carl Jung was all after, you know, digging down deep like that. And the stuff that's on the surface can certainly imply things and be be a clue, but you know, I'm that's what I'm all about is like what's going on at the deepest level. So 
Oh yeah, yeah. But I I don't want to leave the issue of of your involvement with MUFON quite yet, but sure thing. there is a quote from John Keel, and I'm I'm doing this from memory. It's I think it goes, "Oh, those saucer hunting groups and their drama." Did I did I get that quote right? <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah, that is one of. I mean. Okay, to be honest, I have probably hundreds of favorite Keel quotes, but that is definitely in there as one of my favorites. Now, I want to phrase this nicely because I recognize this is a touchy issue. But, I mean, that quote, and um, I, I know a bunch of people who have worked for MUFON and still work for MUFON, and it sounds like that organization can can be a, a little bit like junior high school. See, it's funny because I, I read that quote. I believe that's in the Mothman Prophecies, but I might be wrong on that. And, you know, I read that. And it was shortly thereafter that I first joined on to MUFON. Um, and I, it took me a while to get my training completed um, just because of other things going on. And so I read that quote and then I joined MUFON and I thought back to that quote and I was like, oh, you know, I actually laughed. I was like, how bad can it possibly be? You know, I thought that, I mean, how many years later things must have improved. And I was dead wrong. Um, there is, you know, I think that whenever you have really groups or institutions, there's just always going to kind of be that element of drama. And that was that was something that was really frustrating to have to deal with, especially because, you know, I was really just in the organization to, you know, see reports of UFOs. That was my entire purpose for being there. And then all of a sudden you have all this, you know, just crazy, you know, so-and-so said this, so-and-so did that in the background. And that was just a big drain. And it's a bummer because, you know, with MUFON too, there's a lot of people who are in it for the right reasons, you know, and there's a lot of really great researchers who are doing really good work. And then there's also, you know, all that going on. So it's definitely frustrating. And I get that. And I mean, I worked at an outdoor school and it was an incredibly idyllic job in so many ways, but there was plenty of catty drama going on there too. So I think it's just human nature that that stuff shows up. Oh yeah. Yeah. You told me a story about waking up to a purple light. Yes, that was a very like, it's one of those things too, where it's probably my strangest paranormal experience and it's by no means the most dramatic or the most iconic it was it was this it was kind of like a magenta like burning pink infrared sort of light and um i was 17 and i just woke up in the middle of the night and there was this pillar of this burning it really was it was just like this infrared kind of pulsating ish pillar of light and it was next to my bed and then the next thing I knew, it was my entire field of vision was just enveloped in this burning infrared light. And I've had the deepest emotional response to this paranormal occurrence, uh, more so than anything else I've experienced, because I was I was actually terrified. And on the other hand of things, I was also there's this impression of just absolute peace and contentment, unlike anything else I've ever experienced. And I don't know how the encounter ended. I don't know if I just fell asleep and woke up the next morning. I don't know if it went away. I don't remember that part. And the interesting thing is I kind of wrote off this encounter for, gosh, years, just because there was really nothing I could correlate it to. You know, it's not like you can say, you know, oh, it was a ghost activity. It was, uh, you know, UFO. It wasn't anything like that. It was something I really just couldn't describe. And it was 
it was last year sometime, I was actually listening to an interview with Brent Rains, who wrote um, John Keel's newest biography. And he was discussing Keel's experiences with the paranormal, because, of course, Keel had a lot of personal encounters with paranormal phenomena throughout his lifetime. And all of a sudden, Brent Rains is talking. He's like, there's this account from when Keel was 18 and he was awakened during the middle of the night in his apartment by this pink light. And so I was actually, I listened to podcasts when I do my sewing. And so I was like, I was literally sewing and I kind of just stopped and I sat there and apparently Keel had this experience where he woke up and there was a pink light in his room. And he said that he felt as though he received some sort of um, information download, you know, that the entire knowledge of like the universe kind of poured into him and, then he woke up the next morning and he couldn't remember any of it. And I just, you know, it's not often, like I said, I don't really have a fear response or like a freaked out response to much of this stuff anymore, just because I'm so interested in it. That was one of those that actually hit me kind of hard because it was, it was hearing almost identical to my experience, even though I, I don't claim to have received any information download, but I will say that there was obviously some sort of interface between me and whatever this pink light was. It was, it was very strange. Um, but you know, it's like hearing your encounter from someone else and then to have it be that it was an experience that John Keel had. And of course, John Keel is, he's one of my idols that just, I actually had to take a few minutes and just kind of, you know, think it over and to what, say the least. And what changed in your processes, like after that experience or, or I'll, I'll say subconsciously, what do you feel might have changed? Well, surprisingly enough, that is actually when I started reading John Keel's work, and that's when I started thinking about this in a more abstract way. Um, was pretty much it was that year that I had that experience. Oh, so the purple light experience brought you to John Keel? It was right. It was prior to that, yeah. So I, you know, I hadn't read, you know, except for the um, his book that I read when I was, you know, nine years old. Um, I hadn't read the Mothman Prophecies or any of his other books at that time. It was actually like right before that. Well, maybe the purple light said, Celia, you didn't listen to us when you were two. Get on it. Read more John Keel books. You know, honestly, it, it is. It's very strange that I didn't make that connection until just recently either. I mean, so much of this, the experience and the research, I just, you know, I wonder how much else would come to light if I actually could figure out how to merge those two ways of thinking. Well, a lot is coming to light regardless. So whatever is going on, you seem to be, you know, you're on the path right now. So you know, it's going to happen when it happens, if it happens at all. So don't force it, I guess. But at the same time, you know, proceed forward. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to do. I mean, yeah, I am. I'm just so interested in this stuff. And that's I think that's the big thing, too, because like a lot of people do. They have just a fear response when it comes to the unknown. And of course, the idea of a lot of this stuff is is scary. But for me, it's like after having so many different encounters with different types of phenomena i just i'm to the point where i just really want to know and if that involves seeing if that involves experiencing it then i am fine with that be careful what you wish for yeah oh i know and keel you know keel said the same thing i know there is he has a warning in so many of his books he's like anyone who's looking to get involved with this i would advise against it and you know i i take that warning seriously but at the same time i'm just i'm so curious <laughs> And I'm curious, too, and my life has flipped over in the last decade, just flipped over. Yeah. The old person that I once was is 
just gone because I lived, I, I did not pay any attention to this until I was about, I mean, I read some books and, and I could tell some stories like around the campfire, around a dinner table. I could tell some really good stories. I never put any credence into it. I never trusted it. I denied it. I knew the implications, but I wasn't going there. So until the event that really kicked it off for me was just seeing a bunch of owls. And yeah. and that doesn't have anything to do with UFO research in in a literal way, but in a metaphorical or a subconscious way, it has everything to do with it, or it certainly did for me. So, hey, we are coming up on our second break. And when we get back, we have lots, lots more to talk about. For free Dreamlanders, you will be hearing a few commercials. For paying members, we will be right back. We are back on The Unseen with my guest, Zelia Edgar, and we are talking about the unknown and about personal experiences and about, I guess, just navigating this field, or I guess it would be better to say these overlapping, strange, seemingly divergent fields, uh, the field of ghost hunting, the field of Bigfoot research, the field of uh, UFO contact. So yeah, we're we're jumping around a little bit, but my sense is these things are all connected somewhere. Zelia, in 2011, you have a story about seeing orbs. Yes, that was that was one of those experiences that did kind of just renew my interest. You know, my interest in the paranormal has never lagged, but there are just certain things that really kind of like, you know, bring certain things to the forefront. And so that experience, it was very... It was probably my most dramatic paranormal experience, if that makes sense, because I was actually in the presence of five other witnesses. And, you know, they were just these perfectly round spheres of this kind of orange light. And they were moving in this fixed parallelogram formation. I live actually um, on an, at an intersection, so they were moving right over the intersection. And they're only about two to three stories up in the air. And they just moved in this... I can't even explain how perfect it was just this perfect fixed sort of way over the intersection then one by one they stopped and one by one they just kind of rhythmically blinked out they started a little slower like blink 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 and then blink 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 and then they were just gone and this is full daylight this was it was kind of heading towards the evening but it was still light out so it was gosh probably about it was i think it was march or april and it was like maybe seven o'clock ish at night. Okay, good. Yeah, it wasn't totally dark. And also it was a really overcast night. So the cloud cover was really, really low. And that was kind of like, you know how it gets to that point where it's sort of like the clouds look really luminous and it's kind of brighter than it would be if it was clear. And there was nothing left behind because of course my initial thought whenever I see orange orbs is, oh, okay, you know, Chinese lanterns, but these are not Chinese lanterns. They weren't shaped like that. And they were moving just again, fixed, like totally perfectly together. And when they blinked out, there was absolutely nothing left behind. And there was also nothing really behind them. Like, you know, typically you think of like some lights in a fixed pattern, you think, okay, there's got to be a shape behind them or craft. There was nothing visible connecting them. But my favorite part of the story, actually, is the response by um, one of the other witnesses. So I was actually standing outside with my family. We were looking at these lights. And, you know, as they started blinking out, all of a sudden, this boy tears down the street. He cuts through our yard. and He runs across the street and up into his house. And so, of course, I'm thinking, okay, well, he obviously saw him. So I walked over with my mom. and We knocked on the door. And he came to the door. And we asked the obvious question, did you see that? 
And he was he was visibly shaken. And he said, you guys don't understand. I was at the school playground and the, the school playground is like, gosh, maybe five blocks away, just down the road. And he was like, I was at the school playground. And these things came over and I thought they were gone. But then they came over again. So apparently he saw these objects, possibly different objects, come from the same direction twice. And it was at the second time that they came over that he got freaked out, probably thought the Martians were invading and decided to run home. You know, and that just really that did kind of kick up an interest in the orb phenomenon. I have a special interest in that because I think that, you know, orbs are seen with each different type of paranormal phenomenon. And I think that, again, this is just evidence of some sort of connection or condition that underlies each of these different fields. And when you say they're seen with each different type of phenomenon, what, what do you mean? It's very interesting because typically when most people think of orbs, the very first thing they think are ghost orbs. And unfortunately, typically when they think of ghost orbs, they think about those uh, like the dust mote photos. But no, orbs, you know, obviously are seen in haunted houses and places that are supposed to be haunted. A lot of graveyards have recurrent sightings of orbs. Um, but then there's also, you know, there's the spook light phenomenon where an orb will show up in the same place and perform the same maneuver over years. And then you have UFO orbs. So people report seeing, I mean, orbs or fireballs are one of the most commonly reported UFO types and very similar to the sighting that I had where it may be a bunch of them moving in a fixed formation. But then the really interesting thing is that orbs show up a lot with cryptids. Um, I just actually did a little bit of research on Momo, the Missouri monster. And not only is there a history of spook lights in that area, but actually there were these fireballs that appeared right around the time of the Missouri monster sightings. So so fireballs, so fireball is different than a meteor or meteorite, let's say, that comes crashing yep. to Earth that would, like a, a lump of rock plummets through the Earth's atmosphere. It is going to turn into a bright orange blob of fire as it races towards the Earth. And I have actually seen a uh, fireball out my window on a cold winter's night um, as I was turning the lights off to go to bed when I was living in Idaho, and I had a very strange reaction. Really? I had deja vu. It felt like deja vu. Wow. It was like a second I saw this. It would, by all accounts, by all measures, it was a meteorite. Um, obviously, it made no noise. I was in the house. It could have been very far away. And um, it just zipped down with a tail, a bright orange ball with a tail. And But... But I, my reaction was it felt like deja vu, like, oh, this again. Oh, this is important, this again. Wow, that's really intriguing. Yeah, the terminology for these things, and this is where it gets a little, the road gets a little muddy, because the terminology, especially for, you know, different types of UFOs, they sometimes cross into different things. So when someone is talking about fireball, you know, they're perfectly describing what another person would just term an orb or a ghost light. So term, the terminology of these different things is really interesting to me, too, just because I feel like a lot of stuff can get lost in translation. And what does MOMO stand for? So MOMO, it's uh, the abbreviation of Missouri, so M-O, and then the first two letters of monster. And, you know, by all accounts, it's a classic cryptid report. But really, the more that you look into it, there is a lot of high strangeness involved. I mean, people in the area at the time... Uh, it was the early 70s, if I remember correctly. I just did the research, but yeah, I'm horrible with dates. Um, but around the time that there was this flap of creature sightings, there was also a flap of you know UFO reports. People were reporting seeing these green and white fireballs. They were reporting seeing different types of unknown craft. 
And there was also a flare up in the area around Louisiana, Missouri, apparently is known for like spectral screams and things like that. And there's a flare up in people hearing these anomalous screams as well, and even disembodied voices. So and see, it's stuff like that that really, really intrigues me, because a lot of these cases, you know, the classic cases, I'm a huge fan of like, you know, the 60s, 70s era of paranormal investigation. And a lot of these classic cases, they kind of get pegged as one thing or the other, you know, as in the case of the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, that's definitely pegged as extraterrestrial. Momo is definitely pegged as cryptid. But really, the more that you look at it, a lot of them, they all bear the hallmarks of just overall high strangeness. And so I think that, you know, that's my interest, too, is why certain things get to be pegged as one thing or the other, when really across the board, you know, these different flaps, they all have attendant high strangeness. And I just I think that there must be something to the conditions of these places at certain times that causes all manner of phenomena to flare up. And my sense is that these are all connected in that um, I have talked to many UFO abductees who have also seen Bigfoot. Like, I mean, both mm -hmm. of those things should be minuscule in the overall population. And to have people with, you know, one or the other having both tells me that there's something more going on there. Oh, yeah. And what that might be is the mystery. But boy, it sure makes me think of Bigfoot as uh, I think that a big hairy ape in the woods is far, far too simplistic. Yeah, see, and it's one of those things where Bigfoot, you know, old habits die hard. If there's one thing I really, really want to be the conventional explanation, for some reason, you know, the idea of Bigfoot being encrypted is, you know, something I really wish. But again, the more I've looked at the evidence, there is just, you know, I mean, you have accounts um, such as the Marlington, West Virginia case where a sighting of a hairy creature, you know, a Bigfoot, apparently stalled this guy's car not once but twice. You know, so when you start having electrical disturbances around something that by all accounts should simply be a great ape. You just, you have to really take a second look. Yeah. And, and, um, and then the paranormal aspect of telepathy with these, mm -hmm. with these Bigfoot, you know, I, I know one fellow, uh, his name is Kuoni, uh, and he lives in the North Cascades, uh, up near Seattle. And he has a story of like literally walking down a trail with someone. And he was telling a story while they were on the trail and he, he was with a friend and they turned around and there was a Bigfoot on the trail behind them or a Sasquatch, as he would say, a Sasquatch on the trail behind them. And they both kind of freaked out. And telepathically, the Sasquatch said, I want to hear the end of the story. Oh, wow. Which is very typical of, of his types of encounters, which are very personal. Yeah. You know, that's the interesting thing, too, with Bigfoot is like there is there's you know people who feel the same personal response, which is very common with both ghosts and UFO occupants or, you know, aliens, however you want to phrase it. Um, but two, I think that the thing that really does it for me is the seeming inability of these things to really be photographed. I mean, you know, I'm not saying there is no photographic evidence for, you know, things in the paranormal. I think there is, but it's definitely few and further between than you would expect if we were just going after an animal, even one that could, you know, have an amazing ability to hide itself. So I think that there is just, you know, there's something that must connect each of these. Yeah, I keep on thinking of the just the uh, mountain lion, which is very elusive. I mean, people live yeah. in mountain lion terrain their whole lives and never see them, but there are tracks everywhere. There are plenty of pictures of them. People do see them. You know, they get hit by cars. People find their bodies, you know, so there, there's plenty of evidence for mountain lions out there, except that they are an extremely elusive animal. Yeah. 
Now, I read on your website, you have an article linked there called Knit Caps and Coveralls. What, what's, the, what's this article about? So that is about something which I find very intriguing, and that's actually the issue of UFO occupant clothing. So I have a side interest in like costumes, actually, and clothing is something that I find very interesting and how it relates to how things are perceived, especially in like, you know, film and media and stuff like that. And I think that's probably why I started picking up on the different patterns between UFO occupant clothing. And it occurred to me, actually, when I was doing research on the Flatwoods monster, because, of course, the Flatwoods monster, you know, it was described as like this robotic thing. Um, And it was observed with a downed craft in Flatwoods, West Virginia. And suddenly it hit me as I was doing research on that, like, well, this is exactly what we should expect. You know, if we are expecting actual physical extraterrestrial biological entities to be visiting our planet, you would expect that they would be wearing protective gear or they would be sending robots. I mean, that's what's really natural if we're thinking about space exploration, especially landing on alien planets. But ultimately, typically when it comes to UFO occupant contact, A lot of the times, I would say most of the time, you don't see any sort of protective gear at all. And instead, what we find are often knit caps and coveralls. You know, even especially one of my favorite UFO occupant contact cases is the Simonton encounter, which occurred in Eagle River, Wisconsin. And Joe Simonton, this was the infamous alien pancake incident. He was given pancakes in exchange for water from beings inside of this luminous silver craft that landed above his front yard and he said that they looked like italians and they were wearing turtlenecks and little knit caps so those two very different cases that of the flatwoods monster and the simonton encounter i was researching them roughly at the same time and it just suddenly occurred to me that yes you know typically we see these almost borderline comical outfits on these perceived extraterrestrials, something that really doesn't make much sense, especially given the fact that if they are extraterrestrial biological entities, there is no way that they would be able to breathe our air, that they would, you know, take that risk even if they could. And so, yeah, that's kind of my current study. I think that along with other things, this points to an idea that, you know, the answer to the UFO phenomenon is going to be something a lot stranger than extraterrestrials visiting us. Not to say that it might not include that, but I think that most of the sightings are of something a lot more bizarre. I agree. I agree. Now, you're familiar with um, Joshua Cutchin's work, aren't you? Oh, yes. Yeah. So he's done a book on both the food that's offered to people who see fairies as well as people who uh, have UFO contact and as well as people who encounter Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And then he did a follow-up book on smells that are associated with those same three divergent topics. Now, what you're doing in a way to looking into this clothing thing, I am kind of cautiously predict you are going to find a wealth of information. You are going to be, there is going to be so much to wrestle with on this one slim little fractal of the overall you know, UFO phenomena that this, the stuff of clothing, if you stick with this, I suspect you'll be flooded with strange stories. And I also suspect, and I want to be very cautious saying this, many of those stories will arrive in your lap through, let's say, curiously synchronistic means. I could definitely see that happening. And, you know, that's kind of too why I'm, I'm, it might seem like yeah, a very small detail, the issue of clothing, especially because, you know, a lot of occupants too are seen without visible clothing. Um, but it's something that interests me because I believe that it kind of 
I think that more often than not, it's going to play into cultural symbolism. I think it might play into um, the particular witness's subconscious. And these are things that I find very intriguing with, you know, not even just the UFO phenomenon, but the paranormal in general. And, you know, especially, too, when you start branching, there's a small bunch of sightings of cryptids wearing clothes, especially, you know, the man-wolf reports. And that's something, too, that I'm just intrigued by. So, yes, I do think that the longer I stick with it, probably the stranger it's going to get. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, stick with it. Stick with it. So, Or, you know, be careful if you stick with it because it can impact your life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So... Now, okay, I'm, I'm going to change the subject a little bit. I have been to a lot of UFO conferences, and I am just a few years away from being 60 years old. And, and I go to these conferences, and I feel like I am one of the youngest people in the room. I, I'm obviously not, but it sure feels like the age bracket that goes to UFO conferences and that um, the people who are most interested in this topic seem to be, let's say there's some gray hairs in the, in the heads of those people. I'm really curious. I, I don't really see or sense a younger generation coming in to follow the path that these people are leading, not just the researchers. I'm just talking about the people who are interested in the subject. And I might be wrong just because I might not be at the venues. I know that the um, like the giant cosplay things like um, Alien Con and things like that have a completely different clientele than the than the International UFO Congress, for example. So, so I'm asking you because you're you are that next generation, and you know what's what's happening. What do you sense out there among your generation? See, I've definitely noticed that too. Just because you know I do, I go to a lot of like book signings and presentations and stuff like that, and typically it does appear to be mainly you know older people, and then also too a lot of I see a lot of like you know grandparents bringing their little kids, but not so much people my age, and it's weird to me because you know, what's a more perfect icebreaker? Everyone I meet, especially at, you know, work or anything like that, one of my first questions is, so, hey, ever seen a UFO? And, you know, it's interesting because I do, I get a mixed response, but I would say over half of the people I ask have actually been like, yeah, you know, there was this thing I saw, I saw this weird light, blah, blah, blah. So the bizarre thing to me is that I feel like there's kind of more of a general acceptance um, among people my age, or at least, you know, not a total rejection. But at the same time, I also I haven't seen the same level of invested interest in the phenomenon among people my age as I'm sure there was in years past. And I don't really know uh, why that is. I'm not sure if it's because, you know, there's a lot of especially UFO TV on the media. I mean, there's also the whole run of paranormal shows. So I'm not sure if that's kind of like if you have an interest in it, you just kind of outsource to watching it instead of really doing the research um, or what, because yeah, I would say that even though there's kind of an air of non-rejection, there's just not a lot of vested interest. That's interesting. Yeah, and it seems like it's a shame because, um, I mean, there needs to be a, a next generation following up on the hard work that has been done ahead of them. Oh, yeah. And hopefully it happens. And maybe um, the younger crowd is much more attracted or comfortable with the cosplay things like Alien Con or even something like a big, big event like uh, Comic-Con or Conscious Life Expo. Those, I think, get a lot of people and a lot of enthusiasm where I, I am seeing the the standard UFO convention sort of struggling, let's say. I mean, it's really tough to make ends meet with one of those conventions. I've talked to a lot of people who've run them. It's tough to get your money back. 
Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I feel like there is kind of the interest is probably changing. You know, I'm seeing a lot more. I hate to use the term hipster, but I'm seeing kind of like a very hipster vibe with some of the, you know, paranormal fields. And I think that if that grows, the interest might actually follow that a little bit. Um, So I just I do. I hope that, you know, there is kind of renewed interest in the serious research as well as, you know, I mean, pop culture and even the kind of pop informational culture. That's always going to be a part of this because I feel like it always has been. But I think that really it shouldn't carry the phenomenon, like the interest in the phenomenon exclusively. Maybe it's just I mean, the digital age and the Internet, I feel like really reinvented kind of how everything is perceived and how everything is dealt with in today's world. So, you know, maybe this is just one of those things that's kind of still taking a bit to situate itself in the public eye. I'm not really sure. Well, that's as good an answer as I've ever heard. So, yeah, maybe. Yeah. We touched on a story earlier about your mother, and you and I talked about this on a telephone call, Mm -hmm. and I thought it was a fascinating story where your mother had an experience with the moon, with what she she referred to as the moon. And would you be okay telling this story? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is, again, just something that, you know, I grew up listening to stories about the haunted house, and this was one of those that just kind of it wasn't really talked about as much as some of the other stories because it wasn't really exclusively like a haunting as you'll see in a minute. So my mom, apparently this would have been sometime in the early to mid seventies. My mom was watching TV one night when all of a sudden she looked out the window and she noticed what she thought was the moon. And it's kind of a confusing story. So I'll try and keep it all straightened out. So she went over and looked at it and she was looking out the window at the moon and simultaneously her older sister, she's actually, she's one of seven sisters and then she has two brothers. So one of her older sisters was upstairs and the room that she was in upstairs was known as the ghost room. Everyone who slept in this room had really negative paranormal phenomena occur to them, including you know bed shaking, terrible nightmares. Um, and so her sister was up in that room who, and she also saw the object. And then they were both next to each other downstairs looking at the object. And what my mom remembers happening is that this mist kind of obscured the face of the moon and it went away and then she looked and she realized, oh, that wasn't the moon because the moon's over there. Now, what my aunt remembers is that they looked at each other and said, well, let's just go to bed. So that story is strange enough on its own. But then there was a different story, one that no one ever connected, where my aunt had moved out and she said that she woke up one night and she was in her apartment And she saw my mom in the room with her. And so she said, well, Lori, what are you doing here? And she turned the light on and my mom was gone. And, you know, you might think, okay, well, that's just a dream. But here's the thing is that she was actually accurately able to describe exactly what pajamas my mom was wearing, how her hair was done, Um, you know, because she told her about the weird occurrence. And of course, people were like, well, you know, what, what did I look like, blah, blah, blah. And so she was able to accurately say exactly how my mom looked that night. And so these two different occurrences, they were always just kind of, you know, they weren't really the most important. I mean, you want to hear about the ghost stuff. You want to hear about the voices that people heard in the house, you know, the pictures that flew off the walls. That was kind of what took the spotlight for, you know, the old stories of the haunted house. And so these two were kind of just like lesser stories. But then it was actually when I was really starting to get into, you know, kind of the quote unquote weirder stuff in the UFO field that I really picked up on these two separate events. 
And I started wondering if instead of two separate events, maybe they were possibly tied to each other. Because, I mean, they involved, you know, the two same people. And the interesting thing is that because my mom, you know, she's really she does have an interest in the paranormal, mainly cryptid stuff. And I've asked her, though, I was like, you know, would you want to try and figure out what this was? Would you want to do regression hypnosis? And she's like, yeah, sure. You know, I'm interested. I don't think it's going to be anything. She's kind of like she's not a skeptic, but she tries to remain, you know, kind of skeptical. But then I talked to my aunt about it. So I asked her, of course, for the story, and then she told me, and then I asked her about the second one, and she told me that one, and then I was like, you know, well, you know, what else happened? And she said that after the first event, she started having dreams. She had a huge run of dreams where she was flying and she could look down and see her body. Uh, She had dreams where there was an object like the one that she had seen, but a smaller object, which would lead her through the house um, downstairs. And, you know, so, of course, I'm very interested in this. And, you know, that's kind of all she really wants to say about it. She doesn't really want to go much further past that. And she doesn't want to do regression hypnosis or anything like that. So, you know, it's one of those things where, again, these were looked at as two totally separate occurrences. And the dreams were kind of just a sideline to that. But I think that more than likely, they all must be connected somehow. You know, it's this this is so strange. Now, here's a question for you. Do you have any psychic experiences? Like like what how would you rate your psychic skills? Let me put it that way. Boy, see, I'm always I'm always hesitant to brand myself as that cuz I don't like to make it sound like I'm, you know, better at something than Wait, you are so be, midwestern. But... Just get over it. Get over it. You got to tap in. I I lived <laughs> right, in New right. York. Get over that. Just I so sorry. I don't I, okay. I grew up exactly where you grew up and I know the emotions you're struggling with, so and then I also lived in New York City, and I and I got over some of them. So, all right. Well, then I guess I'll say that I do probably have some psychic ability that kicks in. I've had um, dreams I can only chalk up to remote viewing, um, vaguely prophetic dreams. You know, everyone in our household, you know, we have linked dreams every now and again. Um, for a while, I, I was actually really, really interested in like. Uh, kind of like Reiki and trying to understand energies and stuff like that. And I could try and, you know, sense energy fields. I'm, I've kind of lost my touch with that one, unfortunately. But yeah, I I guess I would say that I probably do have some ESP type abilities. I, I, you're not surprising me by saying that. Not, that's no surprise at all. So, um, and, and I, I do too, and I cannot control them at all. The stuff just brings into my mind sometimes and i can't i can't you know i can't control it and the stuff that just pops in my mind is has been so dead on that it's scary yeah i mean and you know it's frustrating too because like it's never like these dramatic like you know like movie moments where i'm told anything important i probably the greatest level of esp type stuff i had was this crazy dream i had where one of my friends like turned to me and she had pizza in a plastic bag and she gave it to me and it was cut in this weird way. And the next day, cause um, she worked at the same place I do. I work at a cafe. And so the next day I went into work and I was like, you're never going to believe this. I had this hilarious dream of you last night. You gave me pizza from a plastic bag. And she got this funny look on her face and I was like, what? She was like, well, I had, I took some pizza home from my brother's place last night. And I was kind of joking around. I was like, ah, maybe I remote viewed. Was it cut in like weird strips? And then she got a really weird look on her face and she said, yeah. <laughs> and so, like, again, it's it's borderline, you know, just really trivial kind of funny stuff like that. Um, but at the same point, you know, 
yeah, technically, I guess I remote viewed her dinner from the night before in a dream, you know, and I can't, I have no explanation for it. You know, there's this stuff that shows up in this field. Now I'm just, and so I'm particularly interested um, when mythic things show up within these, within the context of these highly charged events, whether it be Bigfoot or ghosts or owls or UFOs or near death experience. I'm, I, I'm looking for these mythic elements to it. And so you said something, and I just have to point it out. You said there's seven sisters. Your mother is one of seven mm -hmm. sisters. Yeah. So, I mean, you know what the seven sisters are. Oh, of course. Yeah, the Pleiades. Yeah. So that may be nothing at all, but I just pay attention to those small details. Well, you know, it's interesting, actually, because my oldest aunt, her name's Diane, um, has an interest in astronomy. And so, you know, growing up, she would always refer to themselves as the seven sisters, you know, the Pleiades. So that's definitely, that's been, I mean, and I do, I have an interest in folklore and legends. I've, I have ever since I was a kid. So, you know, I keep an eye out for stuff like that too. How interesting. And then I'll just say that, you know, oftentimes these, the beings on craft are dressed in flowing robes, you know, like angels or like, you know, the depiction of angels or, or, and I'll just take this, the next step forward, you know, like uh, aliens on Star Trek yeah. are often depicted in flowing robes and a sparkly, magical flowing robes made of very sheer material, you know, which came first, you know, the folklore of the angels in the robes or Star Trek or the UFO contact experiences? Yeah, I, and that's a really good question because, you know, to take this even a step further, um, you know, you even have the classic woman in white entities, which are associated with hauntings. And I've often wondered if those are more of an archetypal figure than an actual case of, oh, a woman died here in, you know, the 1800s. And so now people see her in her wedding gown. Um, so I think, I think there have to be like archetypes that really there is some objective reality to, but there's also a symbolically important facet to them. And yeah, it is, it's always the question of which came first. And I don't know if we'll ever have that answer. I hope so, but I'm not sure if we will. I have plans to talk with Christopher Bledsoe Sr. on this show. Are you familiar with his case at all? No, unfortunately not. He has the woman in white sighting that leaves me speechless. I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase it a little bit here. It's his story, and he's told it many times. Um, Richard Dolan did a long series of interviews with him that's over four hours long. So they're four one-hour segments. I think they spend a whole hour talking about this woman in white thing. I'll put a link to this on the show notes. Now, Chris is a friend of mine. He's about my age. Um, he had a lot of powerful, powerful experiences. Right from the very beginning, he was describing these beings as angels. So he, he's a very devout man, and he saw these beings in the context of a sort of um, angelic. So he was in his yard, and he lives in the suburbs of Fayetteville, North Carolina, and, and he there was a bull, a huge bull in his yard. Like a like a giant bull, yeah. And he's standing there in the yard, and the bull charges him, and it knocks him down. And I've heard him tell the story a few times. This is his story, not mine. So I want to be careful what I say. It knocks him down, and and he thinks he's basically about to die, and it passes right over him. Now he's on the ground now, and he looks to where the bull should have been, and there, hovering about three feet off the ground, is this glowing woman in white oh wow and and he has there's a big painting of it that was done by a close friend of his named doug alt so there was obviously no bull in the yard 
and and so here like like this is a man with ufo contact experiences lots of ufo sightings lots of profound experiences and he's confronted with this archetype yeah the woman in white as well as a bull i mean there's another straight you know mythic creature from ancient mythology too yeah well and two the location was fayetteville you said i mean that the name fayette and fay that ties to so much high strangeness Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. That didn't even cross my mind. Yeah, so he's and he's interwoven in this web of high strangeness. I think he just gets up in the morning and just follows him around all day long. Wow. So and a very very soft spoken, credible witness. Wow. Here's a question I ask everyone, or I used to ask everyone. I had my own podcast going back a decade now, and I would ask these two questions to everyone. Actually, I'd ask three questions. How would you define shaman? Boy, well, I know that, you know, there's a bunch of different traditions which each have their very particular, you know, definitions for that. But I think at its core, it's someone who has been altered or contacted somehow by the other, whatever that is. You know, of course, that's the big question. And it's changed their life dramatically and set them on a different path, you know, a way to try and understand it and help other people understand it. So I guess that at its core, that's the base idea that I think that represents. Yeah, very good. Very good. That's you did a lot better than most folks do. That some yeah, so <laughs> some some people say just witch doctor or something like that. So very good. So um how would you define archetype? I believe that for archetypes, that's a tricky one because I think that, you know, obviously the base is that it's a strong symbol. It's a character symbol that represents many different particular characters, each with slight variations, but they all fall into this one pretty cohesive idea. And so I think that that's like the base of it. But in dealing with the paranormal, I believe that there has to be some sort of objective reality behind it that is trying to convey using the archetype as a tool. Very good. Yeah, you're doing great. So here's the third one. What's up with the owls? That is a very good question. And I think that, I mean, owls, they feature prominently in every culture's mythology that I've come across as, you know, a lot of the times being messengers, being from the other, you know, their associations are really strong in that regard. And I think that they have kind of, I think that maybe there is, there's an archetype that has grown from them and something that they represent. So I guess that in regards to this, I think that they are the archetype of, you know, something that carries between this and the other, if that makes sense. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. So those are the questions I always used to ask. That was part of every interview I ever did, and I've stopped doing it. And I, I was curious, mostly when you brought up the idea of archetype, all of a sudden it just, I said, oh, I've got to ask the questions. Where do you foresee yourself 10 years from now in this work? You can say you might drop it and not do anything at all, but I'm curious what you think. Well, I'm definitely not going to drop it. I mean, um, I've been interested in this forever. And, you know, the longer I'm in it, the more I just really want to know. So in 10 years, you know, I really, really, I'm also interested in writing. I do um, fiction writing, haven't been published yet, but even nonfiction writing, I just, I love writing as a medium. And so ultimately, I really, really want to start writing books and you know, having those that's been I mean, I've grown up with researchers as my idols. And so to kind of, you know, follow in that vein, that would be my ideal, I would say. 
That sounds wonderful. How do people get in touch with you? So um, I do have a website. It's justanothertinfoilhat.com. Um, no spaces in that. And from there, um, it connects to Instagram, um, my YouTube channel. I have links to any podcasts that I'm doing. Um, and also, I think it, yep, there's a message thing on that, too. So if someone wants to contact me directly, you can just send me a message through that. Wonderful. This has been a total delight, and I'm so glad I asked you to be on the show. You know, when I first saw you, all I saw was your YouTube videos. We have these short, very straight YouTube videos. It's just you talking to the camera, talking to your computer, and telling of, of UFO events that took place uh, in the past, sort of the history of UFO type stuff, and often with a very heavy sort of John Keel influence, I have to say, in the way you frame these stories you tell and they're short and really nice and and I think it's a nice addition to you know like the pop culture and how these things get passed about because you're doing it with a level of integrity that other folks aren't other folks are a little more exploitative so I, I my hat's off to you on that one thank you very much I my tinfoil hat is off to you on that one <laughs> awesome awesome yeah this was a super fun show thank you again for having me on my pleasure This is Mike, and I am chiming in after the editing. Now, after the formal goodbye at the end of this interview, Zelia and I kept on talking for a few more minutes. Now, the recorder was still rolling, and an interesting thing happened having to do with owls. And this is something I pay attention to. Um, we both thought it was very funny, so I am including this extra bit of dialogue here. It's only a few minutes long, and it's an excellent example of something that happens to me a lot. Okay, here goes. By the way, I loved your three questions at the end. I, you know, I wish that more people would kind of get into like, you know, yeah, these abstract ideas. That was really cool. Oh, good. Oh, well, you know what I was going to say is, and, and just fill me in on this again, because I have it on my notes. And, and when we talked before, you said you had seen owls in the lead up to our phone call. One kept me awake, actually. I didn't see it, but it kept me awake the night before. And actually, I was going to mention this. And to be fair, I'm just putting this out there. I don't know exactly what it was, but something woke me up last night. And it was some sort of warbling noise outside. And I had that on my list of things to tell you. Well, we're still um, being recorded here, so I can plug this right back oh, really? in. So, so um, now... It is very easy to listen to warbling noises. So you're in in Wisconsin, like you're describing a um, oh, what's it called? Not a shriek owl. Um, yeah, have, uh, a, a eastern screech owl. Yeah. I think we also have barn owls too. I know there was one. They're a little more the hissy. They're they sound a little more squ oh, squawky okay. and hissy. Yeah, warbling. You're talking to eastern screech owl. Okay. Yeah. Eastern yeah, or Western, was... you're right on the line there where they could be a Western. A Western screech owls literally sound sometimes like a ping pong ball on a table. You really? know, kind of ping, 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 ping. Yeah, so you know what? Here, let me just see. We're both on the thing here. Like, just I'll look it up right now. I'll send you a link because we're... All right. No, yeah, it, I forgot to mention that, but it woke me up last night, middle of the night, and it was just like, you know, it was loud. It sounded like it was right outside my window. It was just this like, whoa, 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 whoa type noise. Okay, Eastern Screech Owl Call. Eastern Screech Owl Call. Mm -hmm. Hold here. Let me just, I'm going to send you the thing on the Skype chat box here. Oh, okay. And then it'll, it'll just be a link. You can just click on it. Let's see. 
Uh, here we go. Holy crap. Yeah, that was about it. Oh, that was it. Yeah. Okay, I can put that up. No, so, yeah, so was, just just really so you, what you were saying, so it is not unusual for someone to hear an eastern screech owl at night. But yeah, it's not funny that it woke you up. And that was last night, just before this. Yeah, this was this was last night, um, middle of the night. Dang, baby, this, I'm betting a thousand here. Look at that! Just before we talked on the phone, you had owls waking you up. Yeah. Well, it's weird because we just you know this neighborhood doesn't usually have owls. It's like, you know, it's. It's a neat thing. We saw one, you know, gosh, maybe a year and a half ago um, flying nearby. And that was cool enough just to see one. But, no, yeah, that was, the timing was very strange. Well, it's not strange to me at this point. It's very normal yeah. to me. And I'm almost disappointed if I don't get this. So so what you're telling me and what I'm uh, probably projecting big time onto this is that, you know, yes, my my avenue of research is valid. And and the fact that you, someone so immersed in this outlying aspect of all this stuff, in a way are the perfect person to to I guess get that little nudge from from the other. Yeah. I mean that make I could see that making sense, yeah. Wow, you know what? I'll I'll plug this little thing at the end here with Yeah, it was yeah. I mean it is, it's just goofy. I mean Yeah. I think that was really fun to include that extra little bit at the end. Now, you could probably hear some creaking in the background. That was Celia's antique chair. And uh, we had a little talk before the beginning of the show, and I basically told her, don't let that chair creak. Uh, there are very few things you need to know to become a podcaster, but one of them is to get a quiet chair. And if you don't have a quiet chair, sit very still. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.